We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willer Skin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dinah Weeks and Dave Woodard. The Queen left a legacy of service to her people, displayed by the affection they have shown her. Here's hoping our leaders can learn from the example. Here's Scott Thompson. All right, that's the best one yet. Uh, oh, man. Uh, good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today. Will Weber on the board creating the brilliance. And Will Erskine booking the guests. Feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Uh, Dave in the newsroom, of course, keeping us abreast of what's going on. All right. Uh, still lots of chatter in regard to uh, the prime minister. And, of course, you know, here we are in the media. And I'm stoking the fire. I'm fanning the flames. And, really, there's no need to do any of that. Because it is what it is, and you can talk about it as much as you want, or you can pretend it never happened. Uh, I love the way CTV News sold it last night when I was watching the national news, and they said, music is soothing to the soul. And then they played the clip. Uh, I don't know. Did you see any other leaders doing that? Why is it always our guy? Why is it always our guy that's doing that? Why isn't it, you know, like Boris Johnson's gone now. Would Boris have been doing that? Maybe the two of them would be doing it together and then giving each other noogies. Uh, so, again, you know, does it matter? No. Not one hill of beans does it matter. You know why it doesn't matter? Because it is nothing we have not seen before. Uh, good thing he's not in costume or blackface. That's all we can say from a Canadian perspective, because then it would have been a total embarrassment to the country. But, yes, it is the state funeral. It is paid for by the taxpayers, and it does not show uh, uh, the appropriate approach, to say the least. So, uh, does anybody care? Does any? No, but it's just another, another example of our prime minister uh thinking that this is all about uh you know a keg party as opposed to uh being statesmanlike and and, you know well look at all this other stuff that he's done you know this stuff might have flown back in 2015 but it ain't flowing now uh as uh, uh as you know people are having a hard time and i don't think that's well that's what they expect out of prime minister justin trudeau but like i said did you see uh any other leaders doing it and no this is not a big deal nobody cares there's no we have learned nothing more from all of this we have learned nothing more everything that we have learned from this we already know so that's perhaps why uh the poll question of the day was was jt being disrespectful this is our twitter poll question of the day was jd uh, jt being disrespectful when he you know i guess was he being disrespectful to the queen was he being disrespectful to the queen by doing this that's kind of a loaded question no maybe you're not being disrespectful to the queen are you being disrespectful to your country and the citizens up yeah i think so because it's just inappropriate behavior for a leader uh, get yourself a private room. Uh, do it in amongst your friends when there's no phones around. But come on. Come on. So uh, does it, does it, is it disrespectful to the Queen? No, not directly. But it's disrespectful to all the Canadians that are picking up the dime, and this is the example that they show us. So 71% of you said, no, it was not disrespectful to the Queen. Maybe the question should have been, is it disrespectful to Canadians? 
Maybe then it might change. 28%, sorry, 71% saying, no, it's not disrespectful. 28% saying, yes, it is disrespectful. So I guess in a sense, it's not very, you can look at it and split it, that it's not necessarily disrespectful to the queen. Is it inappropriate, highly inappropriate? Yeah, uh-huh, I think it is, uh, especially for the Prime Minister of Canada. Uh, that being said, does anybody care? No, I, I don't think they care a hill of beans. And the reason they don't, it's not a story anymore. This is no longer a story because it happens all the time. It happened. It was a year ago. Truth or reconciliation. The guy's out surfing. So we get one of these a year. So, you know, again, uh, and the fact that we don't care anymore, is just shows you how far that this bar has dropped. And it reminded me, and I've often compared Donald Trump to Justin Trudeau. They're just on the opposite ends of the political spectrum. But they're all showboaters. Both of them are big grandstanders. And I remember people, and this was like in the very beginning of Donald Trump's term, when he was like all over the place and saying all kinds of wacky things, which was pretty much all the time. And people were saying, don't listen to what he says. You know, that's just the way he talks. That's the way he is. And that's the way it's kind of like people, the supporters have got with Justin Trudeau. Well, we know he's kind of flaky. We know he'll all of a sudden break into song and dance. We know all of a sudden he'll dress in a wacky costume. We know all of a sudden he'll just, you know, start pirouetting. What oh, was his dad? Anyway, uh, I'd say he's more like his mom than his dad, by the way, if we're doing that comparison. But but anyway, you know, it's got to the point where you're just so accepting of this now. You've lowered the bar so much that nobody cares. Nobody cares that you're, you know, and again, is it a big deal? Absolutely not. No one cares. Again, just further example of what we have. And, you know, I guess we'll, uh, we'll leave it at that. All right. Uh, lots to talk about inflation. Uh, yeah, it's down a bit, but it's still at 70%. Your groceries are up 10%. You know, the ketchup that you're using it to, to spread and make it lo- last longer, that's gone up 17%. Fruit is up 13%. Bakery goods are up 15%. So um, that's what the real issues here are uh, on the minds of Canadians. It's as simple as that. Uh, inflation is still terribly high at 7%, and the value of the Canadian dollar is dropping below 75 cents due to uh, our inability to get our energy out the door. So we're, we're, we're in a bad situation with this, and we have to see how we're going to move forward. House of Commons back in session. Uh, as I mentioned, the um, or maybe I didn't, the Prime Minister is at the UN and having a conference there, so he is not in the House, but the rest are all there. Uh, and it is continuing just as uh, you thought it might. So, uh, again, we'll talk about all of these issues coming up a little later on. It was interesting, too, uh, Bob Ray talking about uh, what is going on in the world, and especially Haiti and, and, and the leaders meeting in UN and such. And, and Bob Ray, you know, he... he, he, he <laughs> He had a very, very strong statement, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, we need practical solutions to these problems, um, not just, you know, the obvious and, and fear-mongering. He goes, we need practical solutions, and that means solutions that are attainable, something we can actually do, as opposed to just the chatter and, you know, uh, drastic extreme measures, which are impossible to do and really don't have the effect. Practical solutions. Interesting talk. We'll 
see if it continues through the meetings uh, at the UN. That's all coming up today. All right, Interval House Hamilton, a shelter for women and children escaping domestic violence, has resorted to using office space, empty counseling rooms, boardrooms uh, with ongoing capacity issues. They got a 22 bed facility, uh, but currently housing 31 women and children, according to uh, their executive director. Obviously, we remember during the height of the global pandemic how uh, this was very much an issue as we're coming to this stage of it or living with it, whatever you want to call it. Um, how have things changed? changed. Uh, the good news is Interval House is pleased that uh, Shoppers Drug Mart has stepped up with their Love You program, and we'll talk more about that as well with Sue Taylor, Executive Director of Interval House Hamilton, and is with us now. Sue, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you so much for inviting me today. So tell us about the situation right now at Interval House. What's it like? What is what is the concern? Well, I mean, as of yesterday, our uh, number of women and children accessing safe space, uh, we counted at 31. So this is an exceptionally high number for us. You are correct. We are a 22-bed shelter. We had some capacity to go to 28 beds with the support of the city. Um, But we have been really overextended through most of COVID. And definitely this last I don't know, a month or so, uh, we're actually topping 30, which is exceptionally high for us. Um, we, we chatted, uh, you know, about this during COVID and how obviously much more demand for, for services like this. Why do you, ex- why are you experiencing this window now? Do you think of is, is it because perhaps it's over and people are on the move or, or they feel it's over enough to be on the move? Why, why do you see this situation right now? I think there's a lot of factors that lead to gender-based violence and violence against women. And certainly we are seeing a lot of economic pressures on families Mm. and just lots of different pressures coming from different situations. And to be honest with you, reasons why women access our safe space vary. Um, And we do our best to provide the space when women show up. So I don't always have a definitive answer. I I think it's an answer that I could probably spend an hour explaining why our numbers continue to go up versus Mm. go down. It's amazing, though, uh, how what's happening in society is reflected through your service. Like we were talking about the global pandemic, and now obviously inflation is a big concern. And you know, you're pointing to that. It's a, it's a mirror of society, I guess. Talk about this program with Shoppers Drug Mart. How that helps out. Yeah, we were actually quite lucky this year. The Love You campaign by Shoppers Drug Mart has, um, they're going to be donating a portion of their funds that they raise to directly support our work. And it is coming at an ideal time. Um, We did not anticipate in our budget that we were going to have so many women and children seeking safe space. So all of the dollars that are directly coming to Interval House right now through donations are being used to support the women that we have in-house with increased food budgets and lunch budgets for children. And uh, do you see any uh, change in this? Do you see, what are your expectations as you head into the fall months, into the winter months? I don't think I'm going to see a break in numbers. Um, Just, I mean, yesterday alone, uh, we had an additional walk-in. So somebody who came for support uh, and we don't have any more rooms or beds, uh, but we have to, we provide safe space. So a woman will stay with us until we can find her safe space somewhere in the system. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, women are not moving out of the shelter very quickly because rents are quite high right now. So when a woman's accessing the shelter, I mean, she's undergone a serious change to her finances as well. 
and there's not affordable housing that's readily available. So it's really delaying people's move into affordable housing, and that's delaying some of the move from the shelters. How can Hamiltonians help? Right now, for one, you can go to Shoppers Drug Mart and you can definitely provide a donation through there. You can donate to us directly at this time by calling 905-387-9959. And like I said earlier, uh, given we are in some pretty interesting waters right now, all of our uh, donations that are coming in right now are being directed right towards the shelter to support the women and children in-house. What would you say to those who may be listening and might be considering visiting you um, and, and may think they need your help? What would you say to those people? Regardless of what our numbers are, we have a mission to provide safe space for women and children. So if you're hearing this message and you're thinking, oh, I was going to go there, but you're full, we're here and our doors are open for you. Uh, Our beds might be full, but we do provide 24-hour support. We will provide you with safe space if that means you know, an office with a cot while we're trying to find you safe, safe space somewhere in the system, that's okay. We can cope and we'll get through this. Intervalhousehamilton.org or shoppersdrugmart.ca to help out with this program. Sue Taylor with his Executive Director, Interval House of Hamilton. Good luck, Sue. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Remember when we used to talking about when we were initially talking about the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine? A few days, and it would be over. We are entering, I believe, the eighth month into uh, this war, and really, that's what it is—the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, but what does this mean for travel for Russians who want to go to and fro? or even dignitaries who do. Poland and the Baltic states have closed their borders to Russian tourists. Uh, and this all while, of course, the UN General Assembly is convening. What does this mean? Where do Russians go? And does this just create another loophole somewhere else? Let's bring in Matthew Light, Associate Professor of Criminology and Sociological Studies uh, at the University of Toronto and is with us now. Matthew, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Doing well, thank you. Hope you are too. Yes, thanks so much. So where are Russians going to travel? Are they? Where do they holiday? Well, uh, Russians who can travel abroad, which is maybe a quarter of the population based on income, um, go to a number of places, some of which are in the European Union, some not. So um, like other people, they tend to gravitate towards sunny destinations in the Mediterranean. So Spain, Italy, um, Portugal, um, Greece. Um, but also elsewhere in Europe. So there are Russian tourists all over in places that you might not think about that much as a Canadian. I was just in, in uh, the Baltic region, Latvia and Estonia. There are plenty of Russian tourists there as well. They're nearby if you're from Russia. Um, outside the EU, they go to other places in the Mediterranean basin, such as Turkey and Egypt. Um, sky is the limit, but there is no doubt that a lot of Russian tourists head for the countries of the European Union. Uh, before we get to Poland and the Baltic states, why is this allowed? If, if Europe is theoretically at war, uh, going through energy crisis and, sh- and such at the, at the peril of, of Russia, how is tourism allowed? Well, that's, that's, um, you, you framed the question very well. And I think earlier your point that the war has been going on for more than six months now is also relevant. And it, it has been generating a lot of um, anger um, in some quarters in European countries, particularly Eastern European ones where people are more aware of the Ukraine war. Um, many people believe that um, both that curtailing Russian tourism in the EU would be an effective way of demonstrating displeasure with uh, the Putin government's policies 
um, the invasion of Ukraine and making clear to, to Russian citizens that there cannot be a kind of normal relationship with the EU when this is going on. Um, other concerns have been raised too, including um, the safety of Ukrainian refugees in EU countries, whether they um, are endangered by contact with Russian tourists. Um, there have been a number of incidents involving attacks on them, um, hmm. as, um, as well as questions about whether um, the, the availability of uh, tourist visas to enter the EU is permitting um, spies, essentially, to, to enter uh, European countries. Um, over recent years, there were a number of cases of uh, assassinations taking place in the EU countries. Um, so those are the arguments that are made against or in favor of banning Russian tourism in, in uh, the EU. Uh, on the other side, the arguments have a number of dimensions. Um, one is simply that this is a cost that will be borne by the European tourism industry. So uh, depending on exactly where we're talking about, um, you know, Russians are contributing to the local economy through um, spending on, on hotels and restaurants and other tourist services. Uh, there's another line of argument that, that this either will not be effective or is not fair because it's a form of collective punishment. Um, so the um, three Baltic countries, which all neighbor Russia, as well as Poland, have all uh, been trying for some time to persuade the EU at the, the EU-wide level to, to ban Russian um, tourism. But so far, failed. So they are, uh, they have unilaterally or collectively announced that they will no longer permit Russian tourists to enter. Um, this is an interesting development in terms of the EU's own uh, internal freedom of movement policies. So they are essentially saying that um, while they failed to persuade other European countries to allow um, Russians to, to, to prevent Russians from entering, they will not allow even Russians who are in possession of valid visas for the so-called Schengen zone to enter to enter their countries. Everything, all the points that you brought up on both sides of this argument are all valid, Matthew. But what happens at the end of the day when they have no gas because Russia has shut it off? Um, well, the the gas issue and the tourism issue are, are distinct, um, although they're related in certain ways. Um, right now, uh, European countries have been moving very quickly to diversify their sources of gas. And uh, depending on the country... They've actually been a bit more successful than um, some of us expected by this stage. So the, the underlying problem is that for the last 20 years or so, the EU, uh, particularly Germany, has kind of placed its bets on, um, on fixed gas pipelines uh, transporting ga gas from Russia um, either through Eastern European countries or more recently um, through the Nord Stream projects under the Baltic. And now it's become clear that Russia is not a reliable supplier. Um, I think we're looking at a tough winter for Europe in terms of fuel, but um, maybe not as catastrophic as um, what uh, was initially feared. And going forward, they should be able to um, secure other sources of gas for their heating needs. Uh, I agree. These are obviously very distinct issues, and I think that was my point. One seemed extremely serious, the other one not so. In other words, if if Russia is twisting arms by 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 cutting off gas supplies, wouldn't it seem like a no-brainer just to kick the tourists out? Well, um, I, I you know I think that the arguments in favor of this ban are quite persuasive, and um, you know you've just identified yet another one, right, which is that. Um, I think there's a strong case to be made that by permitting Russian tourists to continue visiting European countries as though nothing was amiss, the EU is sending a signal to Russia that, that it's afraid of Russia or it can be intimidated or that it's just um, too focused on, on um, uh, tourism dollars or euros to 
take any kind of serious action. And I do think that, you know, as your question suggests, that a kind of a certain level of firmness by the EU, um, including in, in the form of this, maybe not the most economically significant, but certainly symbolically very significant move to say, we don't want to have a relationship of the sort of kind we've had with your country um, for the time being until you stop attacking Ukraine, you know, would, would be a message to Russian citizens, both that their behavior or the behavior of their government is eliciting disapproval. And also, I think that that the EU is powerful and that um, Putin's claims that he can kind of push it around are hollow. Uh, do you think this is still obviously open for debate? I mean, it doesn't appear that Russia is changing its stance in any way, although Ukraine has been making some gains. Russia's attitude for any of for for any of this has changed. Nothing has changed. They they are still forging ahead and and trying to take over uh, and, and and parts in, of of Ukraine and such that they think is is their territory. So this doesn't seem to be dying down in any way. So is it just a matter of time before this happens? Well, I would say that the momentum is certainly in favor of these restrictions. I mean, this is a very radical move. If you think about what would it mean for, say, Mexico to refuse to accept tourists from Canada, right? That would be a significant economic step for them to take. So the fact that this is happening now, even at the level of these four countries, um, is is a significant departure and indicates that they're quite serious about moving forward with kind of uh, separating out their economies from the Russian economy. Um, Finland has so far um, refused to go along with this policy, Finland being the other EU member state that has a land border with Russia, um, but it, it may buckle to this pressure um, in the medium term. I mean, I think, you know, as your question suggests, the longer this goes on, in some sense, the harder it is to return to a pre-war status quo hmm. uh, of, of uh, sort of uh, an open gas relationship with Russia, as well as, Russia, you know, as well sort of Russian tourism. and. Um, I suppose um, the hope, if you want to put it like that, is that the more of these stringent sanctions are in place, the more will sink in with the Russian citizens, at least those who are politically active, that that um, there are some costs to be paid for the sort of policy of ruining ruining Ukraine that they have um, their government has been implementing for the last seven months. Are you surprised that some think that this would have been a no-brainer? This should have been done long ago, or, or is that are we just naive to think that? Well, um, I think, you know, there are, there are a number of questions. You know, one is the economic costs of taking these steps, at, even at the country level, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, you're telling people who own hotels and restaurants that um, they yeah. cannot, you know, access these customers. Yeah. The other yeah. is that the European Union is a very slow-moving entity with a very complicated governing structure in which there are a lot of places where um, countries can resist proposals of this kind. Um, you know, it's already clear, this is yet another example, where we see Eastern European countries advocating for a harder line against Russia in the European Union and facing inertia or resistance from, from Western governments. So, for example, Germany has uh, staked out its position against a visa ban for Russian tourists. Um, I, I think there's one other point that should be emphasized here, which is that it's certainly possible to, ta- to tailor a ban so that... Um, Entry for tourism purposes is not permitted, but for other kinds of reasons, such as humanitarian ones, such as surgery or visiting you know, elderly family members, could be permitted. Right. Um, the German government has sort of um, uh, tried to uh, allied these um, issues in its arguments for not supporting a visa ban, but they are, in fact, distinct. Um, you know, and, you know, the other point, I guess, is that 
the EU has already gone much farther than, you know, in the last 20 years, even since the aggression against Ukraine began in 2014, um, in the last six months to kind of uh, curtail relations with Russia. So I, I do think that the longer the war goes on, the greater the momentum for for the for for uh, this kind of tourism ban, as well as for other steps to to limit interactions with the Russian economy. Matthew Light with us, Associate Professor of Criminology and Sociological Studies, University of Toronto. Fascinating discussion, Matthew. Thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Let's bring in Carby Levy, tech analyst and author, and talk about uh, everything uh, techie, uh, including healthcare. And also, I wanted to ask uh, sort of an indirect question about car theft. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. All right, before we get to uh, uh, virtual care and how medicine has changed uh, post-pandemic and such, I wanted to ask you, because car theft seems to be a massive problem now. Uh, There's a story that finally now the key fob stuff has gotten to the West Coast, which is basically people forget forget about the old-fashioned way of stealing your car. They just go up and flick a switch, and it opens up and lets them in, and they literally drive away. If we went back to just a typical key, and got rid of this. Would we solve this issue? Is it that simple or am I being naive here? Well, I I don't think we would solve the entire issue of car theft. Thieves would just find another way to compromise our vehicles and and get away with them. But it would certainly reduce one of the most popular uh, forms of car theft. Now, you know, those relay or electronic attacks that, you know, essentially allow them to to gain unfettered access to our vehicles. So it would certainly help the good guys and it would help us ensure that when we come out in the morning, our cars are still there. Um, But, you know, I've I've, every time the new technology or every time a new form of theft comes along that uses technology, uh, it's the same kind of game. It's cops and robbers, cat mm. and mouse. Uh, you know, the technology, thieves figure out a new way to use it. Cops figure out a new way around it. Thieves figure out a new workaround. It never ends. And so if we go back to keys, thieves will just find another way to steal our cars. They're, they're I guess- just worth too much. I guess my question, that's a good point, too. Uh, uh, I guess my question is, does technology make it easier uh, to steal a car? And I guess it's, yeah. it's physical. It, yeah, physi- it, it, there you go. It, it totally totally does. I mean, my car is parked in the driveway just in front of the house. Uh, and uh, and, and I, I have to put my fob in a metal box so that yeah. it doesn't fall victim to one of those relay attacks. Because I, so, you know, and, and, I, and I, I look at the fob and I go, okay, it makes it more convenient for me to get into the car. But now I live in fear of it being stolen all the time. So have we really advanced the technology? Not so much. All right. Uh, uh, We talked a lot about during the course of the global pandemic, obviously, uh, doctors, nurses, hospitals, very much restricted to fighting the uh, pandemic, Uh, medicals, physicals pushed off, elective surgeries and such. Obviously, as in all industries, I wouldn't say many, all industries, technology took a a more vibrant, a more important role. Let's talk about virtual care as far as medicine. And many say there's no turning back now. Uh, there is no turning back and there shouldn't be any turning back. This really is the key to unlocking the future of mental, of healthcare. You know, we keep saying uh, that your know, healthcare is in crisis, that Canada has an aging population that we're putting increased stress on, uh, on the healthcare system. And of course, then along comes the pandemic and it literally crushes it down to its very foundations. Uh, and we're trying to figure out ways around it. We need to be able to do more with less. We need to be able to allow our medical professionals to deliver 
deliver their life-saving services far more efficiently, far more flexibly. We need to remove the rules and let them be the pros that they are. And that's what virtual healthcare offers. This technology can can you know allow much more efficient delivery in ways that uh, you know we couldn't have even imagined before we were all carrying smartphones and wearing wearable devices. We're seeing creative solutions that allow um, you know one doctor to cover far more people far more effectively uh, by leveraging technology in the office so that patients don't always have to come in for a checkup. They can simply share their data with them online and let the doctor then deliver the, the diagnosis and communicate with them virtually as well. Uh, there's, there's no limit to what virtual healthcare can accomplish. We simply need a healthcare infrastructure, a, a framework, if you will, that allows and encourages these technologies to go forward, so to go pedal to the metal on them. Right now, there's a whole lot of legacy rules in place uh, that hinder that from happening, and Canadians are being ill-served as a result. And you bring up a valid point here, Carmi. There's so many avenues that this takes. It's not just a case of getting a physical or, or something like that. It could be prescriptions, could be anything. What's needed? What do these doctors need in in form of infrastructure to make this easier, to make this happen? Well, the Canadian Medical Association has been calling on the government of Canada to uh, you know, ensure that there is a national framework for healthcare, for electronic healthcare delivery, so that when we say virtual healthcare, everyone knows what that very definition is. Uh, they're asking for cross-Canada licensing of uh, physicians, because right now, if you want to roll out virtual healthcare services in one province, they'll be necessarily different than every other province, because every province has its own set of rules. Ontario, for example, is about to roll out changes to the, the billing infrastructure that make it harder to deliver virtual health care, not easier, and in fact, penalize doctors who use technology to cover more ground than they would otherwise. So Ontario is going backwards, uh, which of course doesn't reflect the experience that we're seeing in other provinces. Why is this the case? Why are we not having a national discussion? We absolutely need to, especially considering the fact that healthcare professionals are abandoning the, the profession in droves simply because they can't cope. Virtual healthcare will help them and us cope and it'll help us afford healthcare going forward. Why we're not taking advantage of it more aggressively, I do not know. Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. As always, Carmi, thanks for the time. Be well. Great being here, Scott. Thanks. National year-over-year inflation rate, 7%. That has dipped a slight amount. Uh, but here's the big picture. 10% groceries are up. 17% the condiments, the ketchup you're using to spread that meal farther. 17%. Fruit, 13% increase. Bakery goods, uh, 15% increase. Uh, so obviously uh, what this is is centered around gas because it has dropped a little bit, but uh, everything else uh, is certainly is uh, going up. Let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, and with us now. Ian, thank you for your time. I hope you're well. Uh, yes, my pleasure, uh, Scott. Doing very well. So I understand the reason this has dropped from 7.8%-ish down to 7 is lower fuel prices. Is that accurate? Yes. Um, the uh, prices, of, of, as we know at the pump, have come down. Diesel's down. Oil's down. Uh, apparently natural gas, it, there's a delay there, but it looks like it's coming down. And, and, and energy, of course, is an important component. So let's um, count our blessings when, when they arrive, however infrequent they, that may be. The bad, so this is good news in today's story. But before anyone thinks I am, uh, you know, saying, oh, you know, happy days are here again, I'm not. I'm saying this report today has both good news and bad news. Good news is uh, it, it seems, it appears, based on two months of data now, that inflation has 
plateaued. That's my word, not StatsCan. I think it, it suggests it's plateaued. That's the good news. The bad news is it's plateauing at a very high level in the mm. you know six seven percent range and that is not what is good for the economy that is not what the central bank wants and not what we want uh the other there's some more bad news in this grocery prices and i think everyone will agree not controversial that grocery food nothing is more existential and essential to human existence than food energy is a close second for sure got to heat your home in the winter time at minus 25 but you have to eat whether you're employed, unemployed, partially employed, no money whatsoever, you've got to eat. So that's the bad news in this story. And there's one more story that nobody's reporting on thus far today, no pundits. Wages in this report hmm. are showing cumulative average wage increases, 5%, just over 5%. That suggests uh, it's becoming embedded, inflation's becoming embedded through us and our wage demands. And that to me, is the strongest and most clear evidence we are going to see additional interest rate increases from the Bank of Canada starting next month. If most of this is due to the dip in fuel prices that we've seen, is this temporary? What happens in the wintertime? Um, remember, we're talking, we have to make sharp distinctions between um, uh, gasoline versus diesel versus. Uh, natural gas because they have different markets different price structures generally as these are gross generalizations i'm making over large numbers of people but generally gasoline prices go down um assuming there's no tax increases uh because people drive less in the winter uh, you know the summer holidays is the peak right. driving uh, period um natural gas prices at least in ontario and we are all talking and we're in ontario are, are quasi regulated i i mean by that that the market price at the wellhead um, the so-called Henry Hub, which is a little podunk town in Oklahoma, that's not regulated, but the the uh, the Enbridges and companies like that are regulated in terms of the price they can charge you and me. So it, it's a mixed bag. I'm not so worried now, Scott, about uh, energy prices as such because it looks like things are coming into ba supply and, uh, into balance. I'm much more worried about food and groceries and other uh, parts of the economy and of course uh, other segments and of course wages you were talking about wages and then increasing five percent did i hear that accurate who's that that's stats scans uh, saying that that's an average across the economy i didn't get a uh, breakdown i didn't see a breakdown but wage in other words people across sectors unions i'm guessing it's in uh, unionized sector to answer your question um are starting to understandably i'm not you know, criticizing them are mm -hmm. starting to say, hey, wait a minute, you know, our food prices are going up six, seven, eight, ten percent. Uh, we need uh, a higher wage increases. And so then you get into that sort of the tail chasing uh, uh, the dog chasing its own tail. You know, uh, people demand wage increases because prices are going up. And then companies say, well, we got to put prices up because our wages are going up. And that's what I lived through in the late 70s. That was exactly what was going on. And unfortunately, it took draconian rate increases and a massive recession to to essentially to 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 kill to destroy the, that wage price spiral what's it going to be like this winter ian um if you're talking canada i don't think it's going to be as bad as europe um i really mean that i think europe is going to be yeah. going through hell on earth to be blunt um we are more fortunate, much more fortunate uh, in Canada and the States, you know, surrounded on three oceans as we are. We have plentiful reserves if we choose to use them of uh, 
of nuclear, of, of natural gas and oil. Um, and so really it's going to be the economy, Scott. It's an excellent question you asked. Um, and, and I think we're probably, it's increasingly inevitable. We're going to have a recession, probably the beginning of 2023. And then the question is how deep or severe will it be? In plain English, how many people will lose their jobs? Hmm. Ian Lee with his associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Uh, inflation sitting at 7%, but it depends how you break it down, and certainly groceries uh, way above that. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, lots of discussions in regard to the past 10 days, 11 days in the funeral and the 10 days of mourning uh, with Queen Elizabeth and obvious the outpouring of support for her and uh, a leader that uh, many will look up to hopefully for uh, decades to come. Uh, but obviously lots of questions surrounding the royalty moving forward, surround, uh, surrounding royalty moving forward, whether it's King Charles, whether uh, the role that other members will play, whether it's truth and reconciliation, which obviously is a major issue not only uh, in Canada but around the world in various uh, uh, Aboriginal communities. Ken Coates with us, Professor Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation at the Johnson Schwama Graduate School of Public Policy University of Saskatchewan. And Ken, thank you for taking the time. We uh, greatly appreciate this. Now that the royal funeral is over um, and people have moved on what is the conversation in regard to reconciliation what does the community want to hear so the community is divided on this and and has a variety of opinions as you would expect that is just perfectly normal in the immediate aftermath there was a bunch of really loud noise not just in canada but australia and in africa and places like that where, where, where different indigenous leaders and national leaders were talking about colonization, talking about the monarch as a representative of a, of a system that caused enormous hardship and suffering over, over not just generations, but over centuries, and, and a very loud sort of counter feedback to the, the, all the love and respect that was going on for the, for the Queen in every other context. So it kind of a bit, uh, the timing was bad, and the, the impact was kind of a bit hostile. Um, very quickly, though, a bunch of the more senior leaders and people who had had more experience in the system started talking about the fact that this relationship with the monarchy was broader than the Queen and was a very special one to Indigenous peoples in Canada, particularly to First Nations. Um, their treaties are with uh, the, the, Her Majesty the Queen um, in the 19th century. Um, they were with the monarch of Britain, and they treat that very, very solemnly. And they, they basically extended a sort of an olive branch, basically saying to the new, to the new king, you know, when you get a chance, we'd love to talk to you. We'd like to have, over, come, have you come over and, and reestablish that relationship. So I, I think in the context of First Nations, more so than Métis and much more so than the Inuit, um, the, the, the relationship with the, with the monarch is really, really important. It separates this from the, the, the cut and thrust of Canadian politics. It depoliticizes it. It makes it really clear that the First Nations have a nation-to-nation relationship with, with the British crown. Uh, delegated down to Canada, but with the British crown in the first and, uh, and foremost instance. And I think that's really, really important to them. And I think they're hoping to see that, that King Charles uh, will actually follow in his mother's footsteps and, and make the gracious and, and very, uh, very common uh, uh, extension of her hand or his hand uh, to them and get them involved in, in, in uh, the, the royal traditions as soon as possible.
Many will say the monarchy has not done enough for moving this indigenous conversation forward, although they have made uh, great strides. Uh, what does King Charles have to do moving forward to uh, to to go beyond, even, even extend beyond what his mother has done? So it's, it's a really interesting thing. Uh, King Charles has an awful lot of stuff on his plate, and the indigenous uh, matters will are really important to indigenous folks and to Canada in particular, but but not necessarily in the broader scheme of things really up in the top three or four. I do hope that it will be done very seriously and very systematically. I do hope there will be sort of following up to the Pope's visit of not so long ago, that there will be some, some very good responses and some positive outreach uh, to Indigenous people, welcoming them uh, over to England and uh, coming over here as, as soon as possible. And Prince Charles, when he was the prince, made numerous visits to Canada and very often included Indigenous uh, Indigenous engagement as sort of a, at least a third of his activities almost everywhere he went. So I actually expect to see something coming down the line. And, and we're going to see a lot of things happening on the scale of sort of the core values of the empire. We're seeing this coming out of the Pope where there's active conversations about the Pope publicly repudiating the doctrine of discovery. We're going to get a lot of pressure on the monarch to do exactly the same kind of thing and to say we regret and, and apologize for the the racist uh, concepts, the, the ideological underpinnings of the conquest of British North America and the occupation of lands and, and the marginalization of indigenous peoples. Um, these don't necessarily lead to, to uh, very positive and, and, and constructive outcomes, uh, but they certainly change the conversation. And I suspect that the monarch of the new King Charles will be expected to participate in that fairly early on. And it certainly would send a nice message if, if the monarch did this without being asked didn't wait for a year or two years for the hmm. pressure and, and, and organizations to sort of push him in new directions. This is a fairly obvious one, and uh, the King Charles could do himself a lot of good favors and help the Indigenous peoples in Canada should he reach out constructively and positively in the very first instance. Plus, is there any reason, Ken, to think that he won't keep moving forward on this, especially now uh, the Canadians are where they are on this? I don't think Canadians want to move backwards on this. Uh, so really, is, is there any chance that it won't move forward? Not that it won't. I, I don't think there's any chance that it won't move forward in, in small steps. The question is whether there's a mm. big step that would be done sooner rather than later. And my, my point, I guess, is this, is that if, if he doesn't do something in, 2022, uh, impatience will grow. If he doesn't do something in 2023, frustration will settle in. And then you're going to get the kind of thing that happened with the Pope, where the Pope came over and apologized, but it took so long that, yeah. in fact, it wasn't seen as being as sincere as it might have been. So one hopes that in this instance, there'll be a, there's a good momentum. Um, I think Prince Charles has good relations with a lot of the First Nations leaders across the country. They are looking to the monarch to sort of reinforce that nation-to-nation -nation preeminence of theirs in the Canadian political system. So one hopes there'll be some really active moves in that regard. I suspect there probably will be, um, because in fact, it, it is one of the things that the, 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 the monarch can do without really interfering with domestic politics. And you know, the king and the queen before him were, uh, lived under constant constraints as to what they could do and say, um, because they were under all this pressure not to get involved in the nuances and details of Canadian public affairs. So my guess is, is that he'll do something fairly symbolic and do something fairly quick um, and do something quite meaningful, I believe. Um, and it was certainly would, would set the relationship off in a good stead.
You were talking about the doctrine of discovery. Uh, obviously, this is at the heart of, of many of these discussions. Is there a chance he will apologize? He will make a statement on this? How symbolic? How much would this change things? So my, this is my personal view, and I, it's really an, a question to ask in Indigenous folks rather than me. But as somebody who's observed this area for a long time, I think the, the effectiveness of apologies have kind of worn a bit thin. Mm-hmm. We even saw that with the Pope's apology. The response was, was kind of tepid. It wasn't sort of, oh, wow, that was an amazing thing. It was like, yeah, okay, everybody else has apologized, so now you're doing it too. I would hope that he would go further than that. Um, and, the, and, and in a different direction, instead of going backwards to a doctrine of discovery that, that you know, underpinned what Britain did, but not so much what they said they did, that he would go back to something like the Royal Proclamation of 1763, which actually laid out the British commitment to deal with First Nations on a nation-to-nation basis. It's really a, a, the Magna Carta of Indigenous people in Canada, if you want to use a British, a British reference. Um, I would hope that he would go back to that um, and, and bring it forward and say, actually, what I'd like to do is restate this relationship and reestablish the relationship in a more positive and constructive way. Um, I think Indigenous folks are looking for more real action and less apologizing. We've had a lot of apologizing over the last 10 or 15 years. Um, sort of because substantive change would be seen in a much more positive way. Good point. Let's talk more action. Ken Coates with us, Professor, University of Saskatchewan. Ken, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You're welcome. Take care. Bye now. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The United Nations first annual gathering uh, taking place. Nearly 200 nations. First time they've got together uh, since the global pandemic. So you know there is lots to talk about. Let's bring in Christian Leprac, professor both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and fellow at the Macdonald laurier Institute. Christian, as always, thanks for the time i hope you're doing well yes good afternoon talking to you from germany today oh wow you do get around christian my goodness uh that is why you were such an expert in all of this uh on that note uh the un uh meetings are going on uh the prime minister is there what is tops on the agenda for this meeting considering they haven't been together in a long time yeah i think that's the operative observation right so this is really the first time uh since the 2019 fall 2019 so first time in three years that the heads of state and heads of government uh, are getting together and it's not just the heads of state and government there's usually uh, the former prime ministers for instance uh, will quietly be part of the delegation so there's a lot of conversation that happens here in the back uh, back rooms so an important opportunity to for people to exchange notes and ideas um, inherently people always look for speeches such as the one by the u.s president um uh, there's lots of eyes on what is the trajectory in terms of U.S. support for Ukraine, U.S. support in terms of the Taiwan Straits uh, crisis. Um, and you'll be able to see uh, um, President Zelensky of Ukraine looking to probably call for an international requ- inquiry into war crimes. Uh, you'll probably see uh, a number of Western countries reaffirming and laying out their support for Ukraine to send a clear message to Russia that there's continued to be sustained support over the coming months and, if necessary, years for Ukraine, both militarily as well as their fiscal and the and the social side. So it's really an opportunity for people to um, lay out the narrative, but also for Western countries here to coordinate with one another. So it'll be interesting to what extent 
the prime minister will take his cues from other key allies and partners on global security issues uh, or whether he will be uh, more returning to his own government's domestic agenda uh, and attempt to drive that. So uh, this is, uh, I think, they'll, they'll be, be interesting to watch what the prime minister has to say. There is obviously lots to cover considering they haven't been together in such a long time. Is there too much here to get anything done out of the other end of this? What are you expecting from this? Look, again, that's a really good observation by you, Scott, in the sense that for years now, people have said, like, you know, what's the point of the UN? The UN doesn't get anything done. The Security Council has been largely deadlocked on most issues. Russia basically throws in a veto every time the West wants to do something. Um, and uh, China isn't particularly collaborative either. Um, and yet, of course, uh, the other side of the argument that is, is that especially in difficult global times, it's important to have a forum where people can at least talk to one another. Uh, and especially when we, as the Secretary General of the UN, Antonio Guterres, points out, we live in a time of crises, and these crises are uh, stoked and in many ways accelerated by Russian actions in Ukraine, in particular the hunger crisis, economic crises, inflation crises, security crises. Um, and of course, that also means there's less attention to and less money for uh, to, to support energy transition and climate change uh, in much of the world, uh, that this is, of course, a time when countries do need to get together and they do need to talk to each other and they need to coordinate. And remember, the United Nations came out of sort of the failure of the League of Nations after uh, the First World War, in part because the United States wasn't really part of it. And so this effort to try to create an opportunity for countries that are bound mm. to be at odds with one another uh, to at least have some place to talk to each other and hopefully uh, find at least some common ground on uh, some issues. So you might argue that on that co- on that course uh, account, perhaps the United Nations is, uh, is more important uh, than it has ever been, given the state that the world finds itself in. You're in Germany, Christian. What's the buzz around this winter and energy, the energy crisis they are facing? Uh, yeah, there's a lot of pressure, for instance, on the German chancellor as to what he's going to announce at the United Nations, uh, because Germany, of course, has been uh, at least been perceived as slow rolling weapons deliveries to Ukraine. Uh, and Ted says prefer to do these triangulated exchanges with other countries. Certainly lots of concern here about the coming winter, but the uh, Deputy Chancellor and Minister of, uh, of Energy, Rudolf Habeck, uh, who's also a very articulate politician, has sort of said that Germany actually feels they're probably in pretty good shape. But let me tell you, the institute where I'm at, uh, the thermostats are sat at 19 degrees. Uh, so <laughs> make no mistake, uh, this comes at a, uh, as a at everybody's making a sacrifice here um and uh we, you know we 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 thought we had the cold war and the cold war is over but i think this winter in particular uh germans will very much be feeling it as the cold war i apologize for laughing there will canada receive more pressure to do more at this event well you can already see that it's a letter in from uh, president Zelensky. um and his Minister of Defense to, uh, uh, to Minister Anand, the Minister of National Defense, specifically asking for, um, uh, for LAVs, asking for M777s, asking for 155 millimeter ammunition, um, and, uh, and General Dynamic produces the LAVs and produces the, uh, the ammunition so somebody can, can deliver on, um, asking for winter clothing for, uh, for soldiers. Um, so, uh, so there's certainly, uh, the Ukrainians have a very specific idea of, of what they think Canada could and should be doing. 
So it'll be interesting to what extent Canada will respond to that. Let's remember, of course, that Canada is currently with the United Kingdom uh, training 10,000 Ukrainian soldiers between Mm -hmm. now and December. Uh, We did 35,000 soldiers trained under Op Unifier between 2015 and 2022. So 10,000 in a matter of weeks here. Uh, that's a pretty tall order, but you can see, given the inroads the Ukrainians are making and uh, the relatively high morale, uh, that this training, um, both the general training they're receiving as well as specialized training, uh, and of course training in in international law and adherence to international norms, um, is already making a significant difference in the Ukrainians' uh, um, capacity to perform on the battlefield and keeping their spirits high. In Germany, Christian Leprac with us, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, updating us on what is happening at the United Nations. Christian, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. Always a real pleasure. Have a great afternoon. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. World leaders gathering today in New York City over the next couple of days for uh, UN meetings. UN, for, uh, this is the first time they really all gotten together uh, since the global pandemic. So there is lots on the agenda. And our prime minister is the co-chair of UN committees. To talk more about all of this, Daniel Perry is with us, consultant Summa Strategies. He's, he's here now. Daniel, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, it's great to be here, Scott. Hope you're staying out of trouble these days. So far, so good. Uh, the Prime <laughs> Minister's role, so far, so good. Uh, the Prime Minister's role uh, as co-chair of the UN committees, what does that mean? Well, it means that he's a co-chair, so he helps uh, drive the conversation with other world leaders. Uh, it's him being a statesman, and it's him trying to help Canada have a presence at the UN after we've had some number of years, almost a decade, of just struggling really to be recognized by the UN. How how symbolic is this? How does this present us on the world stage? Oh, like anything the UN does, it's very symbolic. It's a lot more of just trading kind words back and forth between world leaders, trying to solve the world problems. And I would say it's debatable how much they actually execute and actually do push forwards. But if you're someone who's concerned about Canada's image internationally, this is a good step forward. Uh, many uh, often complain this is all talk, this is no action, uh, but we're in a different place now, post-pandemic, haven't met in a couple of years, also a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Does mm-hmm. it put more emphasis on this group to actually get something done? Well, to be fair to the UN, most politics is all talk and little action, so uh, we won't beat them <laughs> up too much over that. Uh, mm. But I think the global crisis that we're facing inside of the Ukraine, I think, kind of puts a little bit more focus on these conversations because I think most Canadians would be able to agree that something needs to happen in the Ukraine, and ideally, Russia isn't the one leading the charge there. Hopefully, the rest of the world will be able to stand up against them. And I think that's what they're talking about right now at the UN is how best to approach that. Is that the number one issue on the agenda, Russian invasion of Ukraine? I would say internationally, yes, right now, because we're seeing that impact that it's having across the world, whether that's on fertilizer uh, or how people will be heating their homes in Europe. It's the driving factor that's going to be impacting a lot of people's lives across the world. How much extra pressure put on Russia during these times? Does it matter? It's Russia, so they're kind of like a big child at the table. Uh, They don't really listen to anyone else. They kind of just throw a hissy fit and do what they want. But I think if we as nations and in the world are able to apply more pressure, hopefully they will withdraw their troops and allow the Ukrainians to have their freedom back and their country back.
even if they are being childish, they're still at the table. So are they going to be reprimanded as a result of that? Will they have to answer to this? It's really hard to say. You can only do so much to reprimand uh, another mm. country like that. Like we've tried to put sanctions on them. Uh, we've tried to even limit if they have Starbucks or not. And even without their coffee jolt, they're still kind of going ahead without this. So it's really hard to kind of say that, yes, the UN will be able to push back against Russia and put them back in their place. I think there needs to be more done. And what that looks like, it's going to be hard to say because the Russians are a tough customer. Uh, we've seen the Ukraine making gains over Russia of late. Will that mm-hmm. encourage more to give to Ukraine and speed this up? It, it, without a doubt, the Ukrainians are punching above the weight in terms of defending their country. And that's honestly very great to see. I think it does justify providing more resources to them. And I think nations across the world are realizing that, hey, if we give a little bit more to, to the Ukrainians, we might be able to stop this invasion and have Russia retreat even more. Once Russia and even China realizes uh, what the world thinks of them at meetings like this, does it change tone? I don't think so. I I think they're pretty well aware of how they're viewed by their allies uh, across the world. And I don't think they particularly care how Canadians feel about them. They have their own agenda and they're pushing forwards on that. Is this uniting the allies? I think it is. It's giving Canadians, Americans, and those across the world one person and one country to focus on in general. So instead of trying to fight among each other, we are fighting against one evil. And I think that's going to help kind of find some common ground among countries. The Queen's passing, obviously, on the throne for 70 years, Mm -hmm. uh, obviously in a democratic situation, so doesn't have the command and control that once did. That being said, it still is extremely significant from, uh, uh, you know, from a a standpoint of 70 years. Mm -hmm. Is that chatted much about at this meeting? Is, Is that just come and gone? I I would say it's more come and gone. Uh, She's more of a figure. She was more of a figurehead than Mm -hmm. anything. So government operations, as we saw today with the House of Commons coming back, are are getting back to normal and people will continue to mourn her loss. But when it comes to country business, we're, we're going back at it. And I think all governments are like that, where they need to restart because there's a lot of business that needs to be handled. Uh, speaking of back at it, uh, House of Commons back today. Obviously, the Prime mm-hmm. Minister not there because he's in these UN mm-hmm. uh, meetings and such. What do you anticipate through the fall? Uh, uh, I think he'll be making some appearances in the House of Commons. Uh, he's back on Thursday. And with a very hungry leader in the, in the new leader of the Conservative Party, I think there are going to be some sparks fr- flying. Um, if you wanted a good, fun drinking game after hours, uh, count and question period how many times they talk about affordability. And if you want a sobering game, drink water anytime they actually find a solution to it. Every time they mention affordability, you have to do a shot. <laughs> Daniel, I want to get together with you and play that game. It would be hilarious. Uh, thank you so much. There. <laughs> there you go. That's it. On would be even more funny, uh, but enough of that. Uh, Daniel Perry, consultant, Summa Strategies, talking about what is going on in the UN uh, getting together, obviously, in New York. Daniel, thanks for the time. Be well. Always good. Take care, Scott. Finally, the Conservatives have elected a new leader in Pierre Polyevra. That happened, uh, it was t- September 10th, I believe it is. And then just shortly after that, Leger did a poll to see how everybody's feeling about all of that. And let's bring in Andrew Enns, Executive VP at Leger's Winnipeg office. And with us now, Andrew, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Keeping well. Thanks, God, for having me back on and uh, hope you're doing well as well. 
So far, so good. Uh, these uh, numbers done just after, I guess, the uh, winner was announced. So what did we learn? What, what, what has changed? What's new here as, as far as how we're feeling about all of this? Well, you know, yeah, the poll was done uh, a little over about a week after the, uh, the, the Conservatives selected Mr. Polyev. And, uh, I mean, uh, on, the, on the ballot front, we see, uh, I, don't, I mean, you know, I think the, the new Conservative leader won't be disappointed. We see a bump up in the Conservative support. They, uh, we were last in field the early part of August. So, you know, the, the Conservatives are still uh, a ways away from selecting their leader. And they were at 28% back then. And they're, in our recent poll, they're up to 34% of decided voters saying they'd vote Conservative. So I think six point jump, I think he'll be, uh, you know, he'd be some, somewhat pleased with that. Whether or not he can take all the credit, I'm not sure, but you never know. Liberals are down a bit, about five points to 28%, and the NDP are up a little. So I think from that ballot perspective, I think, well, first of all, no one's looking at a majority out of those numbers, but I think the Conservatives will, won't will be unhappy with them. Uh, so I think that's probably one less thing that the new leader has to, uh, has to deal with uh, first weekend on the job. Uh, as uh, you'll state, I'm sure often how people feel about the party is different, how they feel about the leader. How do those numbers play out? Yeah, in in terms of the leaders, I think it's a it, as you as you pointed out, it's a slightly different story. Uh, we asked who would be the best, who would make the best prime minister, and uh, in that one, uh, um, the current prime minister Trudeau, he comes out uh, ahead. Twenty four percent of our uh, of our respondents in our poll selected him, followed by twenty one percent. Uh, selecting Mr. Polyev and then 17% uh, Jagmeet Singh. So, uh, you know, I would say uh, maybe some comfort for uh, the current prime minister, but that's that number's a bit tighter than I suspect. Uh, I, I don't have my sort of past numbers on that, but it, it seems a little tighter. And obviously for a new leader, I mean, again, poll done six days after, um, you know, six, seven days after uh, uh, Mr. Polyev uh, took over the job. Um, I don't, again, I don't think he'll be disappointed with, uh, with that kind of result. What does it say when the party's numbers are greater than the leader itself? You did say, well, he's a new leader, so there's a situation, an issue there. But what does it say when, when usually the party's outpacing the leader? Well, you, you, you can sometimes, uh, if the leader's been around a long time and you find that uh, the leader's negatives are, are uh, you know, a bit higher than, uh, or, or let's say positives are a bit lower than what the party's polling at, that you might say the leader is a bit of a drag on the, on the party. At this stage of the game, I think that's really premature. Um, I think certainly, um, you know, what, what, what Mr. Polyever has done is probably injected a little bit of... Um, sort of a little bit of energy into that house of commons and a little bit of intrigue because he's a new, I mean, he's not a new figure as an MP, but he is new as a leader and obviously he ran a fairly aggressive campaign. So I think there's lots of interest in terms of seeing how that's going to play out in the coming, uh, coming days, weeks, months, uh, you know, as, as he gets a chance to, you know, he's the man in charge of that conservative caucus and party. So let's see what he can do. Uh, what's Pierre Polyever's biggest challenge at this point, do you think? Well, I think, you know, I, and I see already, I was, I was just flipping through a little bit of the late breaking news and I see the uh, NDP apparently have launched uh, an attack ad against them. So I think 
obviously the, there you could see some of the you know his opponents uh, getting out and aggressively trying to pick up on some of his uh, his positions and some of his uh, you know his past policy announcements and and you know try to frame him a little bit and i think for so the challenge for for him as leader is to um, you know push back against that and and you know broaden that appeal that obviously he has amongst conservative supporters but now he has to take that and broaden that to a much bigger voter uh you know voter population right and that that's going to be a challenge i think you know in some respects the the leadership might have might have been you know certainly appears to be a, a, a was a fairly um you know maybe an easier task for for him in terms of how well he did I think now the real challenge is can he take some of that message and can he go out and, and broaden that appeal of the party and, and himself? Talk about Jagmeet Singh's numbers. Uh, he was today, earlier today, he said uh, of the Liberals on, on, fl- on inflation, they're always saying it's not our fault. They're always saying we're better off than other countries. Yet he holds the keys because he's you know signed the agreement to keep the Liberals in power in a situation that they are. What, how are his numbers doing? Well, you know, not... You know, our poll, this poll that we just did, his uh, the NDP ballot's actually up a couple points, was sort of low 20s. He's up in around 23%. Still, you know, I would say not, you know, not outstanding. Likewise, his, his um, you know, his, uh, you know, his, his personal best to lead kind of uh, best premier number was 17% third place kind of party that's not that surprising it it hasn't moved much i I think he's still in a bit of a i I think he's still in a bit of a tough spot because um you know on one hand he's pushing hard for some some things that uh, that the liberals are doing i think the dental care plan he's taking trying to take a fair amount of credit i think Mm -hmm. the challenge for mr singh will be will canadians give him credit for that or will they just look at well, it's the government that's doing that, and the government's a liberal government, so hmm. um, it, will he get kind of left behind? Um, I, I think for him, I mean, he's hoping for, uh, you know, some significant, you know, movement. Potentially, I see the attack a bit on the liberals um, to try to to try to take advantage of, of, of uh, you know, the position of the NDP being a bit more for the working, you know, the working Canadian, the, the Canadian family, the low-income family squeezed by inflation. So far, it doesn't seem to be taking hold, but we'll see as the fall goes. What about Justin Trudeau's biggest challenge moving forward through the fall? Well, I mean, the government's challenge is really, this is probably, I would argue, you know, maybe the, the, the toughest stretch for the government, uh, you know, the last couple months and certainly the next months going forward, because the gov- you know, when you think back to 2015, the, the country has not faced this kind of inflation, these kind of interest mm-hmm. rate hikes. And it's a whole new, it's a bit of a whole new, uh, uh, you know, issue matrix for the prime minister and, and for the government to deal with. And not one that um, is really easy for them. Uh, you know, the Bank of Canada, I mean, the, the, the U.S. Federal uh, Reserve raised their interest rates uh, this week, and, and undoubtedly Canada will do another raise before the year is out, which just adds to the pressures on, on a lot of homeowning can, homeowners and, you know, those prospective homeowners, which is a big issue. And the government will wear some of that, even if they're doing, 
you know, trying, you know, it's the right thing to do from a fiscal per- perspective potentially, but, but they'll wear some of that negativity. So it's, it's going to be a challenge. I think you're going to see the prime minister speaking more and more to the, the pocketbook issues of Canadians and trying to do some of these things. And, and, um, but it, you know, it, it, it will be, uh, I think it'll be a tough, uh, a tough issue sort of set for him while, while these things are going on. People will be very sensitive to tax, um, to tax increases hmm. and he's got a carbon tax that sort of is on a, on a regular escalator and, and uh, doesn't appear to be wanting to move from that. So, so he'll have some, he'll have some tough, uh, tough challenges ahead and also now facing, um, you know, uh, at this stage of the game, a quite emboldened, uh, leader of the opposition who's just come off a pretty good victory with, uh, in terms of his leadership and who has made inflation and some of these, local economy pocketbook issues his cause uh, you know raison d'etre for the time being andrew ends with us executive vp at leger's winnipeg office showing where we are uh this was a week after uh, pierre paul ever was elected leader of the conservative party always fascinating andrew thanks for the time be well thank you for the time scott good rest of your show you're listening to the hamilton today podcast from 900 chml so what point is it blackface? Is it uh, the costumes? Is it singing uh, in a London hotel the weekend of the Queen's funeral? And the poll question of the day said it all about how you're feeling, as unscientific as it is. Our CHML Twitter poll uh, was Justin Trudeau's actions uh, disrespectful to the Queen. And 71% of you said, no, my, have you ever lowered the bar? And, and you know, perhaps um, not disrespectful to the Queen because she's seen it before. Uh, as has the king, and there's nothing new there, as have Canadians. We've seen all of this several times, so how can we be surprised? How can we be disrespected, disrespectful? I don't know. I, I think can't Canadians were probably disrespected uh, since they're paying the bill for all of this. Uh, yes, of course, we're making way too much of this, but it's always our guy, and, you know, again, like, they used to say about Donald Trump in the early days. Oh, don't listen. He just talks that way. He's not really like they just talks that way. It's kind of the same. Oh, you know, he's just up there singing. He's a theater arts guy. That's all it is. He's got both oars in the water. He knows what's going on. He knows we're paying the freight. He knows it's a funeral. Scott Radley's with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. He's here now. How are you, Scott? You added an unnecessary and, um, frankly, wrong article to your sentence. It is not disrespectful to the queen. Freddie Mercury is rolling (laughs) over in his grave. This is disrespectful to queen. Oh, Wayne's world did this with more aplomb than Uh, our leader. Here's the thing. Look, I I don't I'm with the I'm with the listeners. I don't really look at this and say, you know, it's a big insult to the queen. We've all been to funerals and we've probably had a chuckle at some point in the time mm-hmm. we're leading into the funeral. I don't know if we've ever done. Plus, we've old. seen it a million times. He's, this but, is not new for him. This is not outside his character. No, but here's the problem with this. It's not. I, I don't care about whether you sing Bohemian Rhapsody. No. Isn't he still telling us and his government that it's unsafe to be in closed quarters and we should still not travel without masks and that COVID is still here? If that's truly the case, how is he in a bar around other people blowing moistly his wind all over the place? Well, there wasn't a lot of masks. A man who, by the way, is clearly susceptible to this virus because he's had it like 17 times. 
surely he of all people should be wearing a mask and keeping his distance still. Uh, you know, uh, look, I, th- the problem I found it fascinating. Be- I found it fascinating that you see them at the UN today and they're all wearing masks. However, at the Queen's funeral, no one's wearing a mask. Of course, it's all performance art at this point. And I'm not I am not one of those who argues that that no. COVID was a fake thing or anything like that. No. But when you when you do exactly what is going on here, when you wear a mask in certain places, because, well, because we're supposed to, but other places you don't. And then again, singing with we were told one time that yelling remember we weren't supposed to go to a sporting event because yeah. yelling <laughs> yelling express yeah. yeah, spit on the person more. in front of you yeah and so yelling and singing was especially a bad idea uh, like again we, we've heard in recent weeks that well you know by the fall we could be back into some kind of who knows what might have to happen with this there is no this is there is no possible way that he can go in front of the Canadian people again, even if he was planning to, after this, and say, "Yeah, you know, no one should be around each other." Even if I didn't think it would happen. You can't. It, do it. It would, it might, you know, my wife and I were spending some lots of time watching the, uh, you know, the ceremony over the last day and such, and that's one of the things we noticed. Nobody's wearing a mask. It was like a kid singing in the choir that was wearing a mask, and that was like pretty much it. And even through the the, the streets and in whether you're in church or out of church, yet at New York for the UN. As they were coming in, everyone's got a mask. And I'm thinking, well, what's different in New York than it was in the entire UK? Because if anything, New York was, they were the wacky ones in the United States, you know, uh, licking doorknobs and not taking vaccination. So I found it fascinating. And again, I'm with you. I'm like fully vaccinated. I'm into it all. Um, I played my part. But I find it fascinating that the Queen didn't see a mask hardly at all. And then at the uh, UN Assembly, blammo, there's there's tons of them. I mean, it just seemed to be odd well, considering it was a day of, later one other thing about this scott and that is look we know that there are people in this country that are big fans of the prime minister we know there are people that can't stand the sound of his voice when it comes on this radio station they Uh watching that video i I gotta say it 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 was kind of precious It, it just it was so drama teacher ish that you look and you almost felt cringe the queen song yes you felt I did anyway. I felt cringy watching it, and so you weren't bothered was, by it, but you felt cringy. Well, I wasn't bothered that he sang a song. I don't yeah. care that he sings a song. I'd like it if he didn't sing it in a way that made me feel ooey. Like you know, oh please, you, you're like even when like when you Scott, if you go to karaoke now, I know you're not the prime minister, but if you go to karaoke, are you trying to? do it up as best you can are you out there just letting it rip and having a lot of fun and like it just it was trying so hard it seemed again i don't know i just it's priorities he's hey look he's just a poor boy nobody loves me he's just a poor boy from a poor family spare him his life from this monstrosity scott He's his, he's his mother, not his father. I mean, I've said that a bazillion times. And Can you we're imagine seeing it Pierre here. having done this? I mean, Pierre did some. Well, he did do the famous pirouette behind the queen. Sure that did. was pretty cool. Sure um, but yeah, this is just, you know, you know what it is? It's almost like he's trying to be his dad. He's trying to be that person in your face. And it's like, you know, is it offensive? Is it whatever? I mean, it's your own personal opinion. But I think at the end of the day, Canadians have just had enough. We've all seen this. We don't need to see any more of it. Well, one more thing. I know you got to run, but th- we are in a time. 
Uh, the only part about this that I would yeah. find offensive about the singing, because again, I really don't find that part a problem at all. The only part is we are in a really serious time in our country when there's a lot of stuff going on. And if there's a chance that you are going to be perceived as being a lightweight because something like this gets out, maybe that's when you don't do something like this. I think it's just a further, I think it's just another further example. He's just on a completely different page than the rest of Canadians. Well, maybe, maybe. And that, and you know what? And, And again, there are those who think this is fantastic and love him for it and good for them. And that's fine. Everyone's allowed to have their own opinions. And there are others, as I say, that if he doesn't understand that these things build this level of in, in some people, this level of absolute disdain, that they just they, if the if they never see him again they'd be fine with that if he doesn't understand why some of this is happening i think he is on a different page and and, and that doesn't mean that he shouldn't necessarily do these things just understand hmm. that the number of people who dislike you greatly is growing and you're not helping when you do stuff like this scott radley host of the scott radley show you can read him in your hamilton spectator coming up after the six o'clock news as always scott thanks for the time have fun tonight do we have to play this song in every stop now for the whole show? If you'd like, feel free. It's long enough. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Thanks to the two Wills and Dave for uh, his work in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Danny wrote in to say, Hamiltonians cannot afford to be feeding coyotes because they cannot afford to be feeding themselves. Ooh. 